The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Closing was very convincing. Almost as if you believed it. I did. You do love America. Of course I do. I didn't agree with the string our government attached to the money in this case, but we have every right to attach strings to the funds we give. My boy. I'm your friend, Danny, but I'm not your boy. That's what troubles me, this notion that we have to take sides in this country now. You're either with us or against us, Republican or Democrat, red state or blue state. can't believe I live in a blue state. No one looks at an issue and struggles over the right position to take anymore. And yet our ability to reason is what makes us human. Lately, we seem so willing to forfeit that gift of reason in exchange for the good feeling of belonging to a group. We all just take the position of our team. I've certainly done it and hated myself for it. I've never heard you make so much sense. I make sense all the time. You just listen intermittently. Could be. London. It's Thursday, May 21st, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today. And you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org or you can visit us at justrightmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Today we have a great show for you and we actually have our in-studio guest with us, um, author William Gardner, who has been a guest on this show before. Bill first appeared on our show back on December 16th, 2010 and which was just before Christmas, to discuss his then-released book, The Trouble with Canada Still. And now he appears in studio with us today um, on his latest book called, what's it called, Bill? Uh, the Great Divide. Why would you call your book The Great Divide? Well, the subtitle is Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never, Ever Agree. And I'd like to tell your listeners uh, that it's not about divided party politics and all that. Mm -hmm. It's about divided worldviews. Um, the image I use to help people understand what the Great Divide is doing is, you know, there's a guy standing on the road on a beautiful sunny day enjoying life, and suddenly there's a huge gash that opens in the road, buildings are falling down, and he looks up and he says, my gosh, it's an earthquake. But, of course, that's not the earthquake. It's the consequences <laughs> of the earthquake. And my book uh, is the same in the sense that it's not about surfaces or pol the political rubble at the surface. It's about the clash or the tension between the ideological forces that we can't see. And the book is trying to make those visible for the reader. Interesting. Now, um, now you're going to be appearing at the Best Western Lamplighter in this evening, I understand, between 7 and 9 p.m. Doors open at 6.30 you're going to be giving a talk, I take it? Yes, I'll be talking about the book and other matters, a bit of a Q&A afterwards, that Excellent. kind of thing, and also, uh, of course, selling an autographed, selling autographed copies of this book. 
Yes, which I understand people can get actually at a discount from the retail value. They can, get. they can, yeah. So I guess if you buy a book at the event, you end up being paid seven bucks just for showing up. Is that right? <laughs> well, plus the autograph, <laughs> you know, 100 years from now, that'll multiply the price by 10. Now, <laughs> it's interesting. So just an odd question to start off with. Bill, are you are you a man with a mission, or are, or what would your mission be, or do you see that? You clearly have a history of expressing your concern with the cultural, political, and philosophic direction you see the West heading in, and The Great Divide seems to be your 12th book published since 1982. Is is this a mission on your part? Is, a, is there a specific issue you've seen for a long time? Well, uh, interesting question. I... Uh, I mean, looking back, I'd say yes. I often ask myself, I mean, I'm not a kid anymore. And I say, gee, how have I spent my life, this part of my life? And I would say uh, trying to express uh, deep ideas. And, you know, most people go through life and they see something and they someone asks them, how does it work? And they give you kind of a level one response. You know, take the radio. Someone says, how does the radio work? And level one response is, well, you just turn the dial. That's how the radio works. But level two response is different. You take the cover off. You check out all the wiring and the vacuum tubes or whatever it is they're using these days to make the radio, right? That's how the radio works. So there's, 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 it, the same can be applied to daily life, you know. We can give first order responses or we can really dig to get at the second order uh, responses and try to figure out what this is all about. So that's why I say the Great Divide is about what's beneath the surface. In a sense, it's about self-discovery. We live in a society in which people are having trouble articulating their true feelings and ideas about, for example, modern liberalism and conservatism. I mean, after all, the subtitle of, of this book is Why Liberals and Conservatives Will Never Ever Agree. Some people say, hey, that's a pretty pessimistic top, uh, subtitle. And I say, well, it's not pessimistic. It's provocative. It's trying to get people to sit up and say, why? Why will we not agree? Well, uh, that, the book explains why and, uh, through a whole bunch of issues, you know, where we discuss human nature, we discuss the topic of human reason, we discuss democracy, we discuss equality and all these kinds of things. And at the end of every chapter, there's a table where the reader can look at the table. It shows the modern liberal position. It shows the conservative position exactly opposite to each other, all these positions. And the reader can find out where they stand. So there's kind of like a set of quizzes, which helps you figure out uh, where you've been and where you're going. And I, I have to report, it's been quite surprising and interesting for me to see some of my friends come back after reading and saying, oh boy, I didn't realize I was walking one way and talking another. When you look at the, a table like that, Bill, um, I have to ask the question, why would we even expect liberals and conservatives to agree? Why would we want them to agree? Well, that's actually an arresting question. Um, it depends, I guess, what you're talking about when you say liberals and conservatives. Uh, my book is not about parties. You know, liberal and conservative parties can do all sorts of things from a policy point of view, which are not what you would think. For example, when Bar Brian Mulroney was running the Conservative Party, he was trying to do all sorts of progressive things like national daycare programs, some kind of four or five, six billion dollar boondoggle, you know, to get the state to raise the country's children instead of, you know, the emphasizing parental child rearing. And I wrote, actually wrote Mulroney a letter because I didn't like the liberal thing that he was trying to do as a conservative. You know what I said to him? I wrote in my letter, I said, and it hit the Globe and Mail for somehow someone leaked it. I said, I said, you're too pink. If you don't get more blue, you won't see any more of my green. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
and somehow that hit the newspapers and all sorts of things unfolded from that. But uh, my point was simply that you can't rely on the party, on a conservative party, to always do conservative things, nor on a well, liberal party to th do liberal things. That's so understandable. But even with the labels, like often Robert and I might say, well, yeah, they should be disagreeing, but often we find ourselves saying that liberals and conservatives think too much alike. Well, that's because when you get a when you get a country like like this, you know, where you have at least three parties uh, contending for uh, the great mass, the middle mass of the votes, they all try they all try to hug the center. They try to keep themselves as different as possible from each other, but they can only win power by hugging the middle. That's why you see them all trying to do that in a country like the U.S., where you have mostly. Uh, Democrats and Republicans that the country's basically red and blue states. That's how it's divided. They try to be as different from each other as possible. Hugging the middle is not what it's all about, like it is here. You know. Mm. Anyway, that's the way I see it. But again, to underline for your readers, I don't want to mislead them. This book is about something deeper than the political rubble at the surface. It's about the ideological conflicts and clashes below the surface that we need to understand. For example, liberals and modern liberals and conservatives. I say modern liberals because they're very different from classical liberals. And let's talk about that, about what happened to our original liberalism in a moment. But take a concept like human nature, you know, just, just one of the uh, eight themes in the book. Uh, which we read before we get to the uh, three social issues at, at the end, which was where I try to pull it all together. On human nature, for example, the typical modern liberal will say that human nature is malleable. Uh, it's extremely malleable. In fact, uh, liberal teachers call themselves change agents uh, because they're trying to perfect society through education. The only way they can rationalize that is by saying that human nature is malleable. Uh, and therefore, we can somehow construct the perfect society here on Earth. The conservative typically says, no, uh, human nature is not malleable. We're imperfect by nature. Uh, we, uh, uh, because human beings are not perfectible, therefore society is not perfectible. And most important of all, government can never be perfected. And this is what explains the conservative, I'm talking about, again, political philosophy, the conservative suspicion of all government. You know, is that it cannot be perfected. So please, you liberals, you know, stop trying to talk to me about how we're going to create the kingdom of heaven on earth because it can't be done. So to finish this, this mm. ideological divide here, the, t the typical liberal will say we have to change human nature through policy and law. The typical conservative will say, no, human nature doesn't change. It's permanent and universal in its most basic respects. We have to adapt the laws and policies to human nature. Now, that's a very different view of how to run a country, and that's why I say they will never, never agree. One of the problems I discovered with the terms liberal, conservative, and you know, even a lot of the other um, labels for, for political party beliefs is that they are, if you look in a dictionary, they're all adjectives. Yeah. They're, they're not nouns. So the next question I ask is, a liberal what? A conservative what? And without the noun, aren't the words rather meaningless unless they're applied to something? And I was just wondering if, you ha if there is some absolute definition in, in, or some more objective definition of what you would call a liberal and what you would call a conservative. And I know you could go on for hours because that's what we talk about on yeah. this show all well, the time. Good. And it's we're good. always arguing over labels because people use them differently. And isn't that part of the confusion and part of the problem? Well, it is. That and we I like use these labels. Yes, know? it is. And especially because we mostly, you know, 
I, I don't want to be rude or use rude imagery or languages here, so I won't. But well, we won't let I, you. I think of party. I think of party. I think of party politics as prostitution politics. That's what I call it, mm -hmm. because most of these parties are not entirely willing to bend everything they think and believe to get votes, but something pretty close to that, which is why we see. You know, the pendulum, the pendulum throughout the history of Canada and the U.S. and all these other Western democracies swings to the left, swings to the right, passes mm. through the middle on the way. You know, but you don't get any real fundamental or deep ideological change uh, unless something uh, very, very different happens. And that takes discussion of political philosophy. Let me give you an example. Sure. Uh, I probably started out as what we used to call a classical liberal. Pr probably you did, too. Still consider uh, myself one in, in, to yeah. some degree. But what happened to that kind of liberalism? Well, in my book, I explain that there have really been four stages in the mutation. I call it mutation because you can't call it evolution. Evolution suggests progress. Mutation is simply about change. How did it change and in what way did it change? Here's what I think happened. When the first pilgrims and settlers came to Canada and the U.S., they were what I call virtue liberals. They were interested in freedom, but only... The only reason they were interested in it is because they felt deeply and in their in their heart of hearts that the only reason we needed to be free was so that we could be good. The real question was not how free are we, but how do we make ourselves and our society a good society with this freedom? That was the kind of focus. And, of course, most of them were Christians or close to it in both, in both of our countries. And um, that lasted for quite a while. But then along came the sort of 18th century enlightenment with whose main spokesman was John Locke. John Locke's philosophy was pretty much... Um, plagiarized by Thomas Jefferson uh, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. I mean, almost every word in that declaration is out of John Locke's treatise on government. What was that all about? Well, it was a kind of move away from virtue liberalism to stage two liberalism. Stage two was about private property, uh, economic rights, uh, individualism, as opposed to, you know, government and all that kind of thing. It was about individual and property and, and individual rights. Uh, and that kind of served everybody pretty well for about 150 years. But what happened was, as time went by, most of those uh, freedom and property liberals, as I call them, began to say, hey, it's not working. We got a lot of poor people. We got a lot of lazy people. We got people that need help who can't seem to help themselves, no matter how free we allow them to be. So we got to make some changes here because society's heading downwards. So they kind of mutated, is the word I used, and into a equality liberals. They started to say that the real root of society, which we used to think of as freedom and liberty, has got to be more. It's got to be equality because you can't be free unless you have more or less equal conditions for everybody. So they brought in the huge apparatus of the state to try to make everybody more legal, uh, more equal rather. Now what this really meant was that, that these Western democracies, some did it before others and faster than others, but they were switching from a foundation in liberty to a foundation in equality. Here's the important thing I'm getting at in this book, I think, in the first part of this book. This introduced a contradiction into the intellectual and moral nature of Western life. Why? Because you can't have a society rooted in freedom and equality of, of the forced equality uh, type. I mean, where you're trying to force everybody's life into the same sort of yeah, more or less equal condition. Sure. Those are incompatible. And you're yeah. going to have policy breakdown, philosophical breakdown, and eventually moral breakdown. So, this, so how was this contradiction to be resolved? Where, where would we go after stage three, which is equality liberalism? Well, the only place we could go, and I think it was very clever and almost unconscious, was that all the Western democracies resolved this contradiction by splitting the body politic in two. We would now have a public body politic called the state, 
or whatever level of government you want to talk about, which would be providing the citizens with equal goods and services insofar as possible, insofar as it could do it efficiently and pay for it and all that. But the other part of the body would be the private body. And this would be the zone of freedom. In other words, you could have equality and all these kind of state-supported services and goods, and you could have total freedom with respect to your body and your sexual behavior. So what do we have today? We have massive statism, massive taxation, massive regulation. There's nothing you do from morning till night which isn't highly regulated when you think about it. Your bed, the mattress, stuff your mattress is made of, the car you drive, the road you drive on, everything you do is regulated, and you better believe it taxed in some way visible or invisible. However, People wanted to be free in these democracies. So what did, we, what, did, what did we do to resolve the contradiction? We gave them as much sexual and bodily freedom as we could. Everywhere we have pornography rights, streaming into people's cell phones, televisions, hotels, you name it. Gay rights, gay marriage, abortion rights, tax funded in Canada, transgender rights, and of course now euthanasia rights. So we have gone from a society in which, as Marx um, <laughs> put it, um, the opiate of the people was religion, to where now sex is the new, uh, sex and bodily rights are the new opiate of the people, sex and bodily freedoms, you know. And that's how we resolve this contradiction, and I call that libertarian socialism. That's the stage that we're at. It's not true libertarianism, and it's well, not true socialism, but it's an interesting combination of the two. That's, a, that's an interesting label. Mm-hmm. Got to take a break now, quickly, and what we're going to hear is the political aspect of this, and this is going back to a previous election, the last one Jack Layton ran in. Mm-hmm. And the question they ask, and that's why I picked this one, because it seems to speak to your theme, and it's the only one I have uh, regarding the political body, per se, is can parties, all the parties in Parliament, work together on our behalf? And so this is, uh, you'll be hearing the voices of Jack Layton, Stephen Harper, and Gilles Doucette in this exchange. People are seeing an example of what's broken in Ottawa here, uh, pretty plain, plain for all to see. But uh, the question from Sam, I think, was a very valid question. He said, can parties work together on our behalf? I'll bet every Canadian thinks that we ought to be working together on their behalf. And I believe that's exactly what we should be doing. Mr. Harper thinks that working together is somehow a bad thing. He tries to vilify it and call us names for, uh, for even suggesting the idea. Uh, and and I, just, I just think that's well, completely that, unacceptable. That's obviously not correct. One of the reasons the government has stayed in office for five years as a minority is we have found partners on various measures, all the various measures we brought forward. For the first time, uh, this time, all three parties have decided they want to defeat the government. That's, that's their prerogative. That's why we're before the Canadian people. But I think the government's record of running a stable minority in this country is pretty clear. And also leading the country through a very difficult economic time in a way that's creating jobs for Canadians. And what we're asking for Canadians is to give us a mandate to keep doing that. Well, actually, that's what's important. The question was good. How can we work together? I'm telling you that the Bloc Quebec was never uh, judging a proposal uh, uh, based on who made it. Uh, when it's good from the uh, good proposal made by the NDP, the Liberals, or the Tory, if it's good, it's good. If it's not, it's not. So it is the case that either you have a Ronald Reagan in place fighting for American principles, Mm. 
and Ronald Reagan's don't come along that often. Mm -hmm. Or even a Republican and temperamentally conservative president such as George H.W. Bush mm -hmm. will come under such cultural and political pressures that the drift to the left, oh, the yes. that, will con that will continue. Yes, you know, well, what, what you generally have had in recent times is uh, people moving to the left rapidly under Democrats and slowly under Republicans. And there you have it. Um, red and blue states, uh, Republicans and conservatives, <laughs> liberals and conservatives. And my question... Remember, they're the opposite in the states. Uh, that's true, yeah. The red states, over red here is, is conservative, yeah. Left way here. Um, my question to you, Bill, is this, and you already touched on it, how one side of the aisle, let's take the conservatives, um, say one thing, but when they get into power, they are extremely the other, usually liberal. And I'll give you a few examples, um, even in this province. Uh, it was progressive conservative government brought in OHIP, progressive conservative government uh, brought in the income tax, progressive conservative government raised the sales tax, uh, started the sales tax, raised it, I think it was seven out of the eight times it's been raised, it's been raised by conservative governments. And on the other side of the coin, you have liberals acting like conservatives. For example, Paul Martin, federally, had some of the, you know, the, ran a, a very f tight fiscal ship. How do you pin down a liberal and a conservative when they say one thing, mean another, do another? Uh, good question. Um, I guess uh, it's a complex reality. I happen to have, I happen to know a lot of uh, people who've gone into politics and then retired from it. And uh, if I ask them about their experience, like what happened? How how did you go into politics with a set of a set of principles called X, and you came out with a set of realities called Y ten years later? And this fellow, I won't mention his name, he looks at me and says, "Bill, it's a hall of mirrors." It's just a hall of friggin' mirrors, you know. You get in there, and your first principle gets shredded to pieces because somebody tells you that the people in so-and-so region are writing, you know, want this or want that. You got you can't, you can't come out with a principle like that. You'll never get their vote. Oh dear, never thought about that. Suddenly, I got to modify my principle. Well, this is what I call prostitution politics. Not everybody's like that, not all the time, but too many politicians are like that too much of the time. I think we live in a society now in which we've lost the distinction between a politician and a statesman. What's the difference? Well, a politician is interested in the next election. A statesman is interested in the next generation. Very different that's a, world. That's an excellent distinction. Yeah, very different world. Now, so people say to me, well, what got you writing The Great Divide? You know, what was that all about? And I said, well... Look, uh, I've said that these things I'm talking about are happening in all the Western democracies, um, and it's very disturbing. What's happening? Well, everywhere I look, I see more democracy and more democracy talk and more government and less freedom. How do you put together that everywhere we look, we see more democracy but less freedom? Uh, and that's why I wrote the book, to try to decide, uh, try to uh, um, clarify how this has happened. And as I say, libertarian socialism is the conclusion I have come to. I think, in fact, the unfortunate um, secondary conclusion that we all have to come to is that democracy has been bad for our freedoms in the political and economic sense. What it's been very good for, whether you like it or not, is another question, is our sexual and bodily freedoms. It's unbelievable how sexually and bodily free we are. Well, when, when were we not? Are you saying that we shouldn't be? Should there be restrictions on these? Because isn't that part of... Like on, so not, now you're saying that we've gotten more freedoms and that free, more freedom is a problem in the social area. Is that correct? 
I'm saying that, well, look, look let's, let's just look at some of the differences between, and one of the first tables in the book tries to illustrate the difference between, say, the 1950s or 60s and today. Mm-hmm. I can just give you some examples, and uh, we can get into the sex and bodily side of it if you want right after that. For example, in the 1960s, think of the concept of the self in the 1960s. It had to do with self-discipline and self-reliance. Uh, and what's it, what is it today? Today it's generally about self-gratification and self-expression. Everywhere we go, I'm driving here from Toronto today, everywhere I looked I saw advertising signs on trucks about you, you know, and your satisfaction. You know, we have what you want and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's marketing, it's capitalism, sure. that's fine. But everywhere we, we go, whether it's into a school or other public facility, what do we hear? We hear talk about self-esteem about discovery of your true self and all that kind of stuff. We don't hear talk about duty, talk about obligation, talk about the fact that self-esteem is a ridiculous concept because, you know, you become esteemed by others when you do estimable things. You don't esteem yourself and advertise it. You know, that's a lack of humility. Humility is the first virtue. Without humility, you can't see any of the other virtues properly because you're too darn self-important. Well, I think, you know, we used to live in a we world. Right? Well, take the letter W and turn it upside down, and you've got today. <laughs> you know, we live in a me world. You know? And there's a huge difference between those two worlds. It's only 50 years apart. Take the question of liberty and equality. You know, we used to talk about liberty under the law. That was a starting line. And all the settlers who came to Canada and America, what did they want to do? They wanted to escape the oppressions and uh, discriminations of the old world, particularly the religious discriminations. And they wanted to get everybody to the same starting line. Let's get them all to the same starting line. And then because we are free by nature, people will end up where they're going to end up. But now the focus is not on liberty under law or the starting line. It's on equality for everyone and the finish line. We feel badly if someone doesn't get to the same finish line that we do. So we start compensating with all sorts of things, you know, from well pro- welfare programs to affirmative action to Lord knows what, mm-hmm. right, to equalize everybody uh, at the Again, line. all of those programs are supported by, by all of the other political parties that I know of. And to some degree, I would say at least the NDP and the Liberals would be certainly open to the freedom aspects of um, the sexuality issue, although going way to the extreme, as we're finding with Wynn, you know, with, yeah. with the changing of the words of consent. Yeah. But are you saying then that, that to be a conservative, what does that mean? You, in terms of say, okay, say pornography, for example, would would it be better for society to ban pornography? Because uh, uh, I'm not going to tell you my view right now. I'm going to tell you that the book outlines the conservative view and the modern liberal view. Mm-hmm. The modern liberal will say that it's about choice. The foundation of his ideology is that choice is primary above all. The conservative says disagree. Choice is a fine thing. We're all free by nature. But the common good is what matters, you know. And uh, diminishing the importance of marriage, making sex uh, free and easy for everybody, right down into who knows what age in the schools, which is what we see everybody struggling with today. This is a problem, and, and it does not conduce to the to the common good. What kind of society do we have when uh, 200 pound guys are buying a case of beer to watch pornography together on a Saturday night instead of learning about courtship and how to prepare for marriage and the duties of fatherhood, you know, and raising of children. You know, we're heading in all kinds of strange directions here and nobody's talking about it. You know, when you and I were young... Well, we talk about it on this show well, all the time. Well, in the country, nobody's talking about it. Yeah, but in, but in the country, nobody's talking about it. That kind of thing happened to Canada without anybody's specific um, approval or discussion. 
Now, you can say you like it or you don't like it. I'm just saying it's pretty odd to find a, a country which is completely saturated with the most hardcore pornography, for example. And I'm not getting on a hobby horse here. I'm just explaining the conservative view as it comes through uh, in this book in contrast to the liberal view. The liberal view is that it's a right. It's a right because I'm an individual who has free choice and I have a right well, to exercise that choice. But one of those views has to be true. They can't both be true. Well, and one of them has to be true. And it seems to me that freedom always should win out. If, if, if the goal is freedom, then certainly having the right to choose these things is essential. Whether one chooses them or not, and then is either held I responsible for the consequences of their choices, that's I think part of what you're trying to define is the problem. People make a lot of bad choices in life, and then we have to bail them out. Well, again, right? don't confuse the book with me. No, no, the book gives both points of view, you know, liberal and conservative viewpoint, you know? But it would seem to me that, that the purpose of, of defining these terms is to, to help people. Like, like you say, you wanted to start a conversation, right? You yep. want to get people seeing a way out of this mess. Yep. And, uh, and, and in order to do that, we have to be clear about what are the right things to do. And it seems to me that in some ways the left is moving towards freedom on some social issues, whereas the right generally has always been opposed to freedom on, on, on social issues, on certain issues, and the reverse with economics. Uh, I right think I think there's some truth in that. Certainly, it's it's uh, it's a broad truth, mm -hmm. not a specific one, perhaps. But I think the response to that from the conservative side would be something like this: Freedom is not a good in itself. First of all, and this book ha this book has a chapter on freedom, by the way, mm -hmm. and uh, in it I discuss what I call the six kinds of freedom. Now, uh, what do you mean six kinds of freedom? Well, if you oh, read it, well, before you get into that, let's take our bottom of the uh, of the hour break, and we'll get into the six kinds of freedoms okay, when we come back it. from yeah. this. Yeah. What we're hearing now is from an old um, All in the Family episode, where actually they were that was possibly the most personally political show to hit North America when it came out in the '70s, and we'll hear why when we listen into this. <laughs> My nerves are bad enough already reading this paper here. These head headlines had put you away. Look at this. Unemployment at seven-year high. Rise of strikes expected here. No end to inflation scene. Nixon predicts great year. Now, where'd you say that? You mean he didn't say that today? <laughs> Ain't you got nothing better to do than ridicule your own president? You gotta admit, he does lend himself to it. Watch it, huh? Watch it, watch it. Oh, come on, Daddy. The president is the administration, and lots of people are criticizing the administration today. Well, not in this house, they don't, because in this house, it's my country, right or wrong. Yeah, but Archie, that, that's outmoded thinking. It doesn't work. In today's society, if something doesn't work, you throw it out. Well, you don't work. Maybe we better throw you out. <laughs> You want to throw somebody out, why don't you start with your buddy Nixon, huh? I mean, it wasn't me who started that unemployment rate going up or the inflation. And Mr. Nixon didn't start them things either. You take inflation. Inflation is directly connected to your wage price index. The president's got nothing to do with it. Because his wage is fixed by Congress. And so is his price. Dad will teach you to argue economics with Daddy. He nailed me good that time. I pledge allegiance to the flag 
the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well, Denny, that was refreshing and patriotic. What gives? I, Denny Crane, am going to court to represent the United States of America. And what has our country done to deserve you? The U.S. Attorney and the DOJ had to recuse themselves, so Alberto appointed me to carry the ball for Team USA, the greatest lawyer in the world representing the greatest country in the world, a match made in heaven. Did you know about this? I did not. There's a sitter when you need one. Why won't you try this case with me? Personal reasons. It's because you're red. That's the old red, not the new red, which is the opposite of blue. That's good. It's the old red. That's bad. And pink. Regardless of my pigmentation, I promised I'd sit with you. That's the best I can do. Denny Crane doesn't need any sitters. <laughs> Denny Crane does need some sitters. And, of course, he's talking about the old red and the new red and how the labels all change constantly. It's hard to keep track of who's who politically. We're in the studio with William D. Gardner, who is the author of The Great Divide, and he'll be talking about that at the Best Western Lamplighter tonight at 7 o'clock. You're all welcome to attend. And, Bill, just before the break, you were talking about... The six freedoms, is that what you were saying? Yeah, I was. And because you made a provocative statement that freedom's not an end in itself, which is possibly something Robert and I would agree with. We always talk about freedom as being a necessary condition, but not a, like you say, not an end in itself. So yeah. I don't know if that fits in with uh, your six freedoms. Interesting to hear about them. Let's g give well, us a, a, a quick recap, if you can. I will. I, I got tired of people citing freedom as a um, guarantee of their rights, uh, well, I'm I'm free, therefore I can do this, therefore I can do that. The the modern label which stands in for the word freedom today is the word choice, of course. People think if they just say, it's my choice, that they can do anything they want, that it somehow legitimizes their behavior. So I said, i got to write about this. So there's a chapter in The Great Divide called The Six Freedoms. And um, it's a kind of um, expansion of an article on my website, which is just my name, williamgardner.com, which talks about The Six Freedoms. It's the most downloaded uh, article from my website over the last uh, five or ten years. Uh, people seem quite interested in what this means. Well, I'll tell I'll you. I'll have to check it out when I get home myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one of the key distinctions, I think, when it comes to freedom is the modern liberal versus conservative conception. And it basically comes down to, as I said, the idea of choice for the modern liberal. But the conservative thinker introduces uh, a contrary concept. He says, look, individual freedom is important, it's essential. We're free by nature. We can't be moral agents unless we're free. But we also live. We're also uh, naturally social beings. We're social beings by nature. And Edmund Burke, one of the great writers on conservatism of all time, said something I think crucially important when someone asked him what he thought of freedom. He said, freedom, when men act in groups, is power. Wow. I mean, talk about uh, the hair standing up on the back of your neck. Freedom, when men act in groups, is power. In other words, when you see people running around talking, trying to justify what they want in the name of freedom, you better scrutinize it. You better scrutinize their objectives because they could be after you or after your head, as in the case of the people in the French Revolution. Exactly. You heard this right. word a lot. You could say totalitarian yeah. when people wor working in groups is yeah. something to worry about too, and that's yeah. power as well. Yeah, and there we go. You see, you mentioned mm -hmm. totalitarianism, and yeah. because we're raised and kind of brainwashed the way we are in our own system, I think everybody's brainwashed to some degree when they go through the school system, we end up thinking that totalitarianism and democracy, which we equate with freedom, are opposites, right? Mm -hmm. enemies, right? 
Well, in fact, there are very great books written about something called totalitarian democracy. How democracy, in the, especially in the European vein, which came through Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other thinkers like that, is very different from our notion of democracy. And it, end up, it ended up in a form of statism, what the French call l'état dirigiste, which means the directing state. You know, the French, mm. by the way, still believe in that. If you go to the Ecole Polytechnique in Paris, as one of their... I, I think that belief in freedom has, has crippled France to a, to a great degree. And, and I don't know, when did it ever, when was it ever said that freedom was the ability to do anything you want? Isn't freedom a natural limit, in a way, to do anything you want, as long as you don't interfere with someone else's... Harm someone else. Harm someone else. And, and, and so isn't that part of the definition of freedom? And therefore, we can't do anything that, we want. That, we that is the most popular conception of freedom in the Western world today. I would say it got well, its... What I just said? Or, yeah, or, yeah, what you okay. just said. It got its first turn, really, in the French Revolution, which uh, writers like Solzhenitsyn described as the Great Deviation, because it completely left behind the notion of what, again, Burke called social freedom. Uh, if we're going to unite in our common human nature as social beings, we have to have some conception of the rights of, and freedoms of society, which are sometimes, not always, but sometimes in opposition to the rights of individuals. That's why Burke said, watch out, freedom when men act in groups is power. Be well, careful well, what, is, what they're asking for. Well, that's know? the problem, though. You know, if, if you're speaking of individual rights, if you have 10 people in the room, that doesn't mean they have 10 times as many rights. They still only have individual rights. Well, a and it becomes an aberration of the term, I think, when we start talking about freedoms in the collective. Um, freedom can only be an individual term, it seems to me, because only an individual is an agent of choice. Well, right? We can work with other individuals. Uh, what you said is true, and that's the kind of libertarian position. Uh, it comes out of John Stuart Mill, whose little book on liberty is probably one of the least read, but most popular books in the world. And which well, he I've been called a lot of names, and libertarian is one of them. Yeah, and he <laughs> I, I don't consider myself a libertarian. Well, such, that, but, but that moral yeah. position mm -hmm. is a classic libertarian position. It's called the harm principle for short. The difficulty with it is because it inspires a lot of people, and it inspired me when I got started until I saw that, in fact, it was, it's, it's, it's an aspect of what is feeding us into the hands of the state, in my opinion, because it, it has played a serious and profound role in what some conservative thinkers call the atomization of society, the breakdown of the molecule of um, society into individual atoms. We call it individualism. Right. Mm -hmm. And and the idea is that the only moral principle that matters is the so-called non-aggression principle, the harm principle. Uh, do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else. Well, the conservative reaction to that is that's just a negative. It has no vision of the common good, which we can share and which we can aim at as a people, which we always used to have. Even well, what, what, 50 what, what years ago, let me finish yeah. this point. Even 50 years ago in our society, you if someone asked you what you thought about this, you would probably find yourself talking about what is good for everybody, not just what's good for me. And you wouldn't be saying, I can do what I want as long as I don't harm you. You'd be saying, this is the we again and not mm -hmm. the me. You'd be saying, what is it that we can do together, right, to make sure this is, continues as a good society for ourselves and for our children and their children and so on. That would be the concern, and Burke called that social freedom, so that 
wrapped up in that concept is things like duties, obligations. It goes back... Well, now, what would be an example of some of those duties and obligations we should have that don't involve harming someone else but that, that should be imposed on us? Well, well, well for example, uh, let, me get, let, me go, let me take your question back to the whole business of democracy. How does, a, how does a modern liberal conceive of democracy and how does a conservative conceive of democracy? I think they both conceive of them as majority rule. Well, do they? That's I think I think there's a big distinction here, and I outline mm -hmm. it in my book. Here's 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 the nut of that. The modern liberal tends to say that democracy is about majority rule, as you said. Ergo, it's about my will. It's about the will of the majority now, and the tense of time that we're dealing with is the present, not mm -hmm. the past, not the future, and so on. Right? The conservative reaction is, hold on, you know, is that true? Don't we have duties and obligations to others which we must express by way of the democratic system? For example, hundreds of thousands of people have died for us to give us this thing we call democracy. They left us a certain inheritance of traditions and customs and rights, concrete rights which we still possess. We owe them for that, you know. We also owe ourselves, of course, deliberation on what makes a good society. But most of all, we owe the unborn, the next generation right, the best society we can leave them, right? So the conservative view of democracy is that it's not about me now, it's about the past, present, and the future. Well, well that would make yeah. Robert and I conservatives then, because that's what we talk about on the show all the time. Well, it we're would. talking about the continuum. Yeah. But I don't think, I, I don't know that the, the words liberal and conservative help define these issues. I, I'm, I'm wondering if they just confuse them a bit more. Um, the other issue too is in terms of um, the social freedom. Isn't that, isn't that basically the same thing as individuals, if we respect each other's life? Isn't the social freedom really made of, you know, protection of life, liberty, and property? And not literally them, but the rights to life, and the right to liberty, and the right to property. Well, here, uh, here again, you have to talk about the concept of rights. It's the chapter yeah. that I wanted to put in this book, but I didn't have time to. If it goes to a, a, a reprint in the future, I'll, I'll put a chapter on rights, because there's a huge distinction here between the modern liberal conception of rights and the conservative conception of rights. The conservative conception of rights is that they're objective. For example, if someone offers you a job at 10 bucks an hour and you do the work for them, you have a right to be paid the 10 bucks an hour for as long as you worked. That's an objective right. That's different from you walking around without a job saying, hey, someone's got to pay me 10 bucks. I'm here. I'm ready to work for 10 bucks. That's a subjective right. Okay, you're offering your labor for 10 bucks, but you have no right to 10 bucks an hour, right? There's a difference no, between an objective you, and a subjective right. You do have the right to offer the labor. Of and course you do. And, everyone ha and, and because the other person has an equal right, they have a right to reject it or they accept do. it. They do. So there's no conflict there. Well, there's a, uh, there, uh, it's just an example sure. of someone having a notion that rights are inherent as abstract concepts in their heads and that they have a right to make claims upon society. Uh, that is true in some cases, but the conservative view of the right is quite different. It's that rights are objective, and they're inherited, and they're created for us by those who preceded us. For example, the right to habeas corpus took a long time to put together and to make it into a concrete, concrete right, which is established in our society in every court in the land, in every law book in the land, and that's only the only reason you have it. It's not because it's inherent in you, like some kind of entrail that you can pull out and show to the world. It's only your right because it's in those books and in those law courts and documents. If they are burned, if they disappear, if governments don't uphold them, that objective right disappears. Good point. We can take a break right now. Again, another interlude with all in the family and another one of those great uh, political discussions in the home. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is the first time I've been off my feet today. Really feels good. Lord, maybe you better not sit in that chair. Why not? This old chair is just perfect for me. You see, Archie. 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 Hey, hey, hey. You're in my chair, Maud. So? I want to sit in my chair. Oh? You're going to get out of my chair? No. If you don't get out of that chair, you know, I got a way to make you very, very upset. Archie, please. Stay out of this now, Edith. Well, I got the secret weapon that can lay this little lady right away. Here we go. This country was ruined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You're fat. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Archie, you promise never to say that name again in front of more. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This whole family was for Roosevelt. That was for two times, but that was it. We didn't know the guy was going to hang on to the job like a pope. He hung on. To save the country. The people adored him. He was a saint. That man had charisma. I don't care if he was sick. <laughs> always had his big mouth open at them fireside chats. Those fireside chats kept this country informed. And one, my friends, from Roosevelt was worth a barrel full of, let me make this perfectly clear. Oh! Now you're wrapping my president, huh? Well, let me tell you one thing about Richard E. Nixon. <laughs> or civil war? We got civil war, Maud. We got right in the streets. Because of poverty and unemployment. No, because of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the first creeping socialist. He brought the country back from the Depression. And dumped us right to the middle of World War II. Which he won as our commander-in-chief. No, that's a lie. General MacArthur won that war. And Roosevelt fired him first. That was Truman. Under secret sealed orders from FDR. <laughs> Maud. Just like that other fact. That he sold us out to Joe Stalin at Gibraltar. They met at the altar. He sold us out there, too. <laughs> he handed all of Europe over to the Ruskies on a silver platter. I don't want to argue with you no more, Maud. And I got my chair back. <laughs> interesting conversation we were having during that break. I guess you agreed with uh, Archie there that FDR was, in fact, a creeping socialist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I do. <laughs> now, well, just before the break, did we interrupt you on a point there uh, that you wanted to finish, or are you okay? No, I'm okay. okay. I think uh, I, I, I want to finish maybe the discussion of uh, freedom by, yes. by saying that 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 for the conservative-minded person, as distinct from the modern liberal, uh, freedom is guaranteed by restraint. In other I agree. words, by, I agree. Or, by order. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember speaking to a libertarian uh, at a conference uh, three weeks ago, and uh, at a conference where one of the themes was freedom and order. And she said, what's this order stuff all about? This woman is a, was a criminal lawyer. And I said, well, what's the criminal code all about? 
I mean, if that isn't about restraint and order and how to guarantee the good society, I don't know what is, and I don't think your freedom would mean a darn thing if you didn't have those restraints, you see. So this is the difference in the focus between the liberal and the conservative. The conservative, the liberal tends to think mostly about individual choice and liberty uh, as a, in an unrestrained well, way. interesting because... And the conservative tends to go the other way and say, look, I agree those things are important, but outside a context of adequate restraint and law and order, they don't mean... Uh, they don't mean uh, so, anything. So, well, how would you explain then the fact that so many libertarians of late have been attracted to the conservative movement, which seems to be the opposite of them? Um, you know, Robert and I have found, you know, with the party we're involved with, Freedom Party, we're attracting more conservatives, liberals, and Democrats, and fewer libertarians. They're all going to the conservative party. Huh. How is that starting to happen? Well, and, and even Harper's been called a libertarian from time to time, which makes us kind of yeah. kind of smile because we don't believe that. But yeah, uh, yeah, you know. Well, I think, um, you know, and we see this in groups that I, where I speak, uh, which advertise themselves as conservative groups, we see uh, the mix, the full mix. We see the so-called social conservative, we see the fiscal conservative, and we see the libertarian, and we see the classical liberal. You could roughly define all those, and I do, I do in The Great Divide, so I think readers will find the book very helpful from that point of view, trying to figure out where they stand, especially when they go to any one of these... 14 tables and and get a surprise but going back to your earlier discussion and mm -hmm. mine and mine about the difference between individual freedom which no one denies is important it's a question of the extent of it and the limits of it and uh, social freedom what Burke calls social freedom the, the the arena of morality will give you a good example of the difference the typical liberal libertarian or whatever will say that will say that morality is about the sum of our individual free choices Right? And the sum of those, when we vote in particular, that's how we end up with our moral system. Well, that's kind of a, an, an aggregate. It's an aggregate or a head counting, which is supposedly producing a moral uh, framework for a society. Well, uh, an Let me finish. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. But the conservative says that's not the way it works. Morality is like a language. Everybody speaks it. You can't modify the language by yourself. Try modifying the English language by yourself. You know, people will call you a nut and lock you up. You know what I mean? Language is something we hold in common. It's spoken by everyone. Uh, society is a molecule. It's not a collection of little unbound atoms that are just wandering around, bumping into each other. You see? But I think from James Stuart Mill forward, John Stuart Mill forward, and there are many others who have fed into this um, over time, now, the idea is, especially when it comes to morality, is, you know, don't impose your view on me. Don't tell me what to do. It's my life, my choice, my body, well, that kind of thing. That is what underlies, for example, and the last part of The Great Divide gets into this, showing the contest between the two sides through the prism of the abortion movement, uh, the homosexual marriage movement, and the current euthanasia movement. Again, the readers can get wrapped up in the discussions on both sides. I think they're pretty fairly, and I should say, pretty uh, aggressively put. I mean, they're clear as a bell when you see these two people kind of going at each other. At the end, you have your little table. Where do you stand? Uh, but at least by then, you see you know what you're talking about. You're not just going to the outrage card, you know? Sometimes when I give a public speech, it's almost inevitable if it's a good talk. Someone will stand up at the end and say, Mr. Gardner, I'm outraged by what you've been saying. And I s look him right in the eye, and I say, well, you couldn't be more outraged than I am. Now, what's your point, you know? And if they have any brains at all, I mean, it's like watching air come out of a balloon. They, it, they just kind of settle down. They say, I see. You want a statement of principle or a fact that you can grapple with. And then we can have a debate. 
I said, yeah, because I can't deal with your emotions. But one of my worries and why I wrote The Great Divide was to try to enliven the debate because I think we live in an, an increasingly closed society, a society where people, in fact, are afraid to speak their minds because well, they'll ups, upset somebody. That was the very next thing I was going to ask you about because you, uh, right in, in the background of your book, you point out how not long ago uh, it was common for people at a dinner family, to, you know, at a dinner, dinner, party, dinner yeah. party, rather, to have, you know, these, these lively debates. And you, sh you, you should hear them around my family table sometimes. Good for you. And... Uh, <laughs> But you find now that a lot of people are unafraid to state their own views, even un, you know, or they were they weren't afraid in those days. Sorry, but now they are, and that the that the that the climate has changed, and that people are afraid to to have the debate. Not, yes, and you I know. think, and I say, therefore, we live in a frightened and infantilized society. We have become like children. We've even become like children. I make the case in the book at the political and legal level because. Most of the great social issues of mankind, there's three of them in this book, that, like I just mentioned, the abortion, euthanasia, and gay marriage issue, are never going to go away. Mm -hmm. They're never going to be solved for all time. But we go forward as if they have been solved by who? Not by us, not by the people, not by our legislators, but by our judges. In other words, we have backed away from a full and fair discussion and debate of these things at the most profound level and simply said, let the courts decide. We've infantilized ourselves. One of the arguments I make in this book, just in passing, is that we have recolonized ourselves emotionally and intellectually. In colonial times, we, called, we wanted responsible government. Why? Because all the laws and judgments made about these important kinds of things would be made by judges outside of Canada, in England, for us. So we were colonists. We weren't legislating for ourselves in this respect. Uh, we got that right. We got responsible government. We started making our own laws about these very kinds of things. And now we're back where we were. We're bumping all, all up to the Supreme Court again, mostly because of the uh, advent of the charter, so-called mm -hmm. Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Subtext, subnote, no mention of duties or obligations in that entire document. And um, instead of uh, having legislators who act like statesmen concerned about the next generation, we have politicians only concerned about the next election who refuse, simply refuse to debate these things in a meaningful way. And they just say, ask the court. The court makes the decision, so we become colonized again. Well, that's, that's, that's been an ongoing debate for sure. We've only got a couple minutes left, and I had to ask you this question, which sort of speaks to your, your theme, uh, but I don't know if it's coming out of left field, pardon the, pardon the pun, but... With your focus on the Great Divide and on North America, do you see another Great Divide on the horizon, namely between Canada and the United States generally? Because, you know, many have perceived Obama as being indifferent or hostile to Canada, while others say that Canada's increasing involvement in world military affairs has brought the countries closer together. Um, right. What's your take on that, or is that even part of the scenario? I know you, you, you focus largely on North America in your book. And, of course, it's a world, yeah. uh, uh, more of a worldview. But does that come into it at all, that kind of a divide? Well, I, because I, it, it's sort of left and right as well. Well, to answer it, I would say that Obama is America's Trudeau. Mm -hmm. That's I, who he is. I agree. And he is basically, uh, instead of putting a toothpick in the water to, ch to change the direction of the ship of America, the ship of state, he's put all the engines in the water and changed the direction of the ship of state in America. He's made it veer in the direction of a kind of European social democratic state more than any American ever thought was possible. And he's done it through executive orders, which were kind of out of order, if you ask me, and all kinds of other policy changes um, that have, well, he's basically been following Canada, Canada's direction. 
you know. Uh, and, and, and when I first wrote the Trouble with Canada book and the re revision of it in, um, in 2010 called The Trouble with Canada Still, Still yeah. um, you wouldn't believe how many Americans who got that book would write to me and say, look, Mr. Gardner, all you have to do is change the names. That's exactly what's happening down here. It's just we're a little bit behind you folks up there, you know. Like you got your socialized medicine already and we don't and we're, we want to get it and all that kind of stuff, you know. And Americans, not the person writing me, but generally. And f it's interesting we're talking about this because I had a debate yesterday with a dear friend of mine and I said, do you know what a conceit is? He said, what's that? I said, a conceit is a belief about something that is true when in fact it isn't. He said, like what? I said, well, like our medicine system. Would you say it's a very good medical system? I'm not saying there's no good medicine here. I'm just saying the system, sure. you know? Yeah, and he says, yeah, it's great. I said, would you say it's, uh, it's um, what, do you know how much it costs? He said, no, I have no idea. I said, well, international studies tell us it's about top three in the world in terms of cost, highest cost, you know? What about delivery, services, longest waiting list in the world of any, uh, any modern medical system, you know? Uh, what about the, the cost as a pr percentage of the provincial budget? I said, well, when it started, all medical stuff in Ontario was like 20% of the Ontario budget. TD financial analysts tell us that by 2050, it's going to consume the entire budget of the whole province of Ontario. Obviously, this is not what we think it is. Something's going to change. Well, you know, we have all sorts of conceits about all sorts of things. And one of the things I try to do in books like The Great Divide is to get below the, the surface level of these things and show people what's really going on beneath the surface. Well, it's certainly something that's uh, needed. And I can't believe it. See, I told you how fast that hour it would went go fast. by. Make sure you catch Bill Gardner tonight at the Best Western Lamplighter. You can hear him talking about the Great Divide. Get your own autographed copy. And we've got to go for today. One another week on, Robert. Join us again next week on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Ah! <laughs> what the hell? Emergency prepared, Miss Drill. Oh, no, come on. Yeah, you know how it works. Once a quarter, keep our readiness up. Now, rise and shine, sleepyhead. Half the town is probably dead. I have to get a lock from my door. <laughs> I think you'll like the drill tonight. I've tried to make it fun. Each of these cards contains a detailed scenario of a possible apocalyptic event. Uh, everything from wildfires to a surprise invasion by Canada. Pick a catastrophe, any catastrophe. Sheldon, Canada is not going to invade California. Yeah, really? You think those hippies in Washington and Oregon can stop them?